Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Doug Wilkes, executive editor of the Deseret News, Sonia Hudson, political reporter with KUER, and Chris Blake, partner with RRJ Consulting. So glad to have you all with us tonight to talk about some of the big issues in the state and around the country. We're going to talk elections today. We're going to talk about the issues that are bringing some together and dividing people as well. So a lot to get to. But I want to start with, with you, Doug, on this interesting exchange happening on the national level. level. We had uh, Tucker Carlson did a show this week, which is so interesting because on his show, he specifically called out a couple of our elected officials, Utah in particular, was the governor and even a little bit on Senator Mitt Romney. Why don't you talk about what happened right there and a little bit about the reaction throughout the state? Well, it's kind of predictable. Tucker, Tucker Carlson makes his living by finding an issue that is uh, far right. Uh, they become wedge issues. And the last thing Utah wants is for Tucker Carlson or anyone to define Utah. Um, he's constantly attacked Mitt Romney as a liberal. Now he throws in our governor as a liberal. They're clearly not liberals. Uh, but these definitions have gotten confused, um, and from a national standpoint, it doesn't help the state. What makes a Utah? It's someone that's hardworking, service-oriented, um, self-sufficient, empathetic to causes, and um, compromising. We talk about the Utah Compromise. We talk about all these things that have made Utah um, the state that it is. And to have outside people, uh, particularly Tucker Carlson in that space, try to define Utah uh, it's really counterproductive to the state. Mm -hmm. So and it's interesting, you try to characterize Utah as trying to be woke, particularly the governor, saying this is the problem right here is he's trying to be woke. I'm, what, what, what do you think that even I means? I mean, I don't know. What does woke mean? It means, you know, whatever it wants to mean to the person that's saying it. Um, you know, like Doug said, Spencer Cox and Mitt Romney are clearly not liberal. They're definitely not woke, um, which is, you know, generally used to refer to people on the left. Um, so it's just an interesting characteristic of trying to further divide the Republican Party by calling, you know, slightly more moderate Republicans who are still, you know, like, very conservative compared to the Democratic Party, but slightly more moderate, trying to shove them even further to the left or say that they're further to the left than they are to, and it's just causing more divisions in the Republican Party. I thought the phrase was interesting from Tucker Carlson. It says, it turns out a a lot of Republicans in red states serially betray their voters. And what's interesting, Chris, is um, he, called, he contacted someone else in the state of Utah, our GOP chair, uh, uh, Carson Jorgensen, who actually went on to talk on the show. Yeah, I think that's uh, disappointing uh, that, that he did from the perspective of that creating that division or s seeming to suggest that there is more of a division. Uh, Governor Cox is, to the point that has been made, not liberal. Um, he has signed very conservative pieces of legislation. He might be more moderate than some in the legislature, but the, the reality is he's a reflection of Utahns and what Utah Republicans and Utah voters want. There are segments within the Republican Party, as there are anytime you have a party, that are going to be more conservative or more frustrated with where the governor is, because he does have a different lens uh, than, than you do when you're serving as a legislator. And so that, that constantly causes conflict and tension. You and I have seen that in our respective roles. It causes tension between those two bodies or those two entities, and you have to, you have to be mindful of those lenses that they're looking through. 
media, one thing to really pay attention to, media finds an issue and then they hammer home that issue. So Tucker Carlson looks like, what, does, what do his viewers want? He finds that issue and then he goes after it. And in this case, he took on Utah in that space. It's not surprising, it's just disappointing because it's not doing anything to build the country. The far left and the far right shouldn't be defining America, and that's the problem we have right now. Can the voices in the middle that are trying to live their lives, deal with inflation, deal with gas prices, can they have a loud enough voice to help direct the country, or is it going to be left to people on the far sides of each each aisle? I thought it was yes, interesting also, I mean, um, the state GOP chair, Carson Jorgensen, went on and he didn't push back against anything that Tucker Carlson said, pretty much, you know, rubber stamped what he was saying um, by either agreeing with it or not pushing back on it. Um, so I think that just gives you a sense of, you know, where the head of the party is at. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, he said we're still looking at whether or not there's some buyer's remorse when it comes to some of our Republican elected officials. Yeah. I mean, Governor Cox has a pretty high approval rating, um, and so I think that that speaks for whether or not there's buyer's remorse. Um, generally, the people of Utah are happy with Spencer Cox. Obviously, there are some Republicans, um, particularly, uh, you know, more people that are really involved in the party who are maybe state delegates who are, you know, uh, elected members of uh, party leadership that are more unhappy with him. Um, that makes sense, given that regardless of what party you're in, whether you're in the Democratic Party or Republican Party, the people that are going to be most involved in those party politics who are going to be state delegates tend to be either further to the right on the Republican side or further to the left on the Democratic side. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if I may, Chris, because you have such a unique perspective on this, having served as the chief of staff for this, the Speaker of the House at, at some point, uh, we, we do have a, a majority of Republicans in, in Utah, particularly in our legislature with those numbers. What kind of issues have you seen when you have a super majority? People would say it's all Republican, but as everyone's talked about tonight, there are different versions of that even within the Republican Party. Well, absolutely. And, you know, you see that even within a legislative body. It's what it what it's what makes running a legislative body, whether you're trying to do the communications or, you know, create a sort of a, an agenda so challenging because you have, in our case, 75 and 29 uh, in the House and Senate that each have their own individual opinions. And it's not uniform. You know, it's the challenge as opposed to the governor who gets to be one voice, one one agenda. And so there's always going to be dynamics there where you're going to have folks that see issues differently, are different you know, flavors of Republican or, or conservative. And so it, it does create a real challenge there. I think one of the things I want to point, though, is to Doug's point, regular Utahns who are concerned about inflation and gas prices and some of these types of things, the political dynamics with the the, concern, the far right and the, the frustration that people are feeling in the center, in the middle, are sort of colliding together to create a real potential wave uh, that, that a lot of politicians are going to have to respond to and could, could create some real significant dynamics going into this election cycle. Let's talk about this wave for just a moment because it's a very interesting time in Utah. We're finishing up our county conventions. On the 23rd is our state convention. And uh, to see what might happen here, Doug, give us a little historical perspective because it is not unprecedented in Utah for a very popular Republican to go to a convention and actually get booed. No, you had, uh, what year was it, 20 years ago, Mike Levick? Yeah, in 2000. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, certainly, uh, Governor Herbert's been booed. Governor Cox was recently booed. The problem with uh, the caucus system, even the convention system, it's the people who are really engaged very often in a single cause that will come and try and make those decisions. And you see it in the election totals where someone finishes second or third. It's why we have signature drives, because you tried to take back that ability for the the total state to vote for these folks into office or from these districts. Um, 
So it's, it's difficult to take a look at what the caucuses are doing and what the conventions are doing and say, do we get the best candidate coming out yeah. of those? Let me ask, let me give you just a couple numbers to ask to this point where you're talking about with the signature gathering processes itself. And Sonia, I'm just gonna give you some notable examples in our Utah uh, history. Uh, Governor Herbert went to convention. He lost in 2016 to Jonathan Johnson, eventually won with 72% of the vote. Mitt Romney took second to Mike Kennedy, as you may recall, uh, in 2018. Then he won with 71% of the vote. And the last one I'll give you, uh, Congressman John Curtis in 2017 lost to Chris Herod, but then he won, it was a three-way race uh, for the primary, 43% of the vote. I mean, those numbers speak for themselves. You know, I was just talking earlier about how, you know, Republican state delegates on the right and, you know, um, Democratic state delegates on the left tend to be more extreme, you know, further to the right or to the left than the, their actual base of voters. And those numbers are a perfect example. Um, I mean, uh, you know, Governor Gary Herbert, you know, a conservative, but, you know, more moderate um, than his challenger, lost at convention, but then won overwhelmingly. Same thing with Mitt Romney. Um, so that, to me, is a perfect example of what we were talking about earlier of, you know, those conventions not necessarily being, and usually are not, representative of the full Republican electorate. So, Chris, it was back to your main point a minute ago. So this wave part, how do they answer then? How do they answer at these conventions when they are kind of looking for that next election cycle, to for the primary or for the general? It, I, I think, ultimately, uh, those that are in future elections, both Governor Cox and Senator Romney, are running a different election. I, I don't like using the current election lens to look forward. Uh, I think those candidates that are up now, though, there are some that could have some challenges. Uh, Congressman John Curtis did not get signatures this go around, despite, as you pointed out, needing signatures to, to win back in 2017. There are a couple of local uh, officials uh, that didn't get signatures. And so the dynamic could be interesting, but one of the big changes going forward is uh, they have moved the filing deadline for candidates. So the filing deadline is now the beginning of the year to coincide with when you declare you're going to get signatures. I think this is sort of the last gasp uh, for conventions because of that. I would be shocked if any candidate not going to get uh, signatures going forward because they're going to know exactly who they're running against and what those dynamics are. And I would argue it's political malpractice if they don't get those signatures. Yeah. No, I think there's, oh, I'm sorry, there's something um, nationally too. People are beginning to ask the question, is the two-party system really where we want to be? The Democrats, the Republicans, even on that national level, the president runs and they have to play to a base or to an extreme and then they know to win the general election they've got to slide back into the middle. That's not new. But now it's really difficult. It's really difficult to be a moderate candidate, get the party nomination, and then see if you can win the election. And this could be a big wave with the way the economy, the economy is good in Utah, but with inflation yeah. the way it is, who knows what happens uh, in Congress. Well, and one of the things that's, I think, important to think about is Donald Trump never came back to the middle. He ran a base election and stayed with his base the entire time. It ultimately cost him. Um, does does that change in 2024? I hope what you're you're suggesting there, Doug, is correct because I think that it does create better candidates. But you ha we have seen both parties sort of say, maybe I can just get elected with my base. Maybe there is enough of a split, you know, just sort of a binary left or right, and uh, and and get elected on that and and govern from that angle. So interesting. Go ahead, Sonia. 
I think that the 2024 presidential election will be a total repeat of 2016. I don't think that that's going to change. I don't think the dynamics in our country have changed enough for that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, Sonia, while, while we're talking about these signature gathering efforts, it's, it's interesting. We have a couple of examples, and I'm going to go through the, some of these county conventions here in a moment because it's, in many cases, it's uh, the incumbent did not win there. Oh, but they also got signatures. But what's so interesting is the business of signatures in the state of Utah as well. And the calculation that goes into these candidates, uh, will it offend the delegates? But also, it's just an, an enormous cost. I, I note that uh, for Senator Mike Lee, for his signatures, he spent $423,000 to guarantee spot. <laughs> yeah, talk about that dynamic. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of complicated dynamics within the Republican Party when it comes to signature gathering. It remains incredibly unpopular among um, state delegates. You go to any convention and you'll hear it mentioned in at least a couple speeches about how the caucus convention system is so much better. Like, I would never dare gather signatures. That's such an insult to this process. They, they, there are a lot of people that really love the caucus convention system and really do not like the signature gathering um, path. The, a criticism of the signature gathering path, which ties into the money, is just it, it's expensive to gather signatures, particularly because the signature thresholds for especially the statewide races are really high. And there's this sense that, oh, you can buy your spot on the ballot if you pay a signature gathering company, you know, $400,000. Um, so that's a big criticism also. And that's been something that's discussed, like, oh, should we lower the signature thresholds? Um, but given how the state legislature feels about it, uh, I don't know that that's, they don't, I don't think that they want to make it easier to use that path just yeah. because there are so many members of the legislature that really love the caucus convention system. Hey, Chris, just one more note on the signatures, because it's, it's interesting how, you know, even that process can be gamed a little bit. Uh, talk about how that's working uh, in Utah through the kind of who you hire to do it, because, you know, some, sometimes you can even pay a premium like Senator Lee did for a gathering, signature gathering company to say, okay, I won't gather signatures for anyone else. You can lock them up for a certain amount of money. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the challenges, I, I've got to believe these companies are facing the exact same challenge that everyone else is, and that is finding employees. Finding employees that will be dependable, that will go get that. Because if you've ever gone to collect signatures, it's a miserable experience. And, you know, it, and it takes a lot of work, and, it, and, and they, you know, they're paid by the amount of signatures that they gather. That If you're more successful, you're going you're gonna to end up getting paid more. And so some of those challenges here in that tight labor market are going to be really difficult. But we either need to see, to Sonia's point, either a lowering of that signature threshold or more people enter the market. And I, I believe the law of economics will win. You know, more people will enter the market if those thresholds stay where they are because more people are going to need it. And spending, you know, 400 plus thousand is just going to be untenable. More people are going to want to get into that, that area. Well, it's an incumbent's advantage because yeah. Senator Lee has $6 million, right? Mm -hmm. He's raised $6 million, so that's, that's a good investment for him. He's got plenty of money to go. Yeah, that's pocket change for his campaign. <laughs> well, 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 Sonia, let's, let's go through those numbers because it is very important to know at this stage how they're doing on their money because it does factor into every political decision they make right now up front. Uh, Senator Lee has raised $6.3 million. Uh, Becky Edwards, $1.2 million. Ali Isom, $642,000. And uh, uh, the unaffiliated Evan McMullins, over a million now and Kel Weston at 80,000. 
Give us your give us your lens on those numbers at this particular point. I mean, Mike Lee has every advantage going into this primary. He has huge name recognition. Um, he has a huge war chest of campaign money, and those are some of the you know biggest factors that go into um, someone's reelection. And you know, just having the the natural incumbency advantage, which is tied in with the name recognition. Um, so, and particularly, I think there's a, a another piece of good news for him is that both Ali Isom and Becky Edwards will be on the ballot. It, and they're going to probably split that more moderate vote that doesn't like Lee. Um, so I, I think things are looking good for him. Obviously, who knows what could happen, but I think things are looking good for him. Okay, good. Uh, let's get into some of these county conventions for a second. Chris, let's start uh, with the GOP. Some things you saw in those county conventions so far, because it didn't work out so well, at least in initial votes, for a few incumbents. Yeah, absolutely. Although at the end of the day, the incumbents did well. Uh, there are a couple still left at state convention. We'll see how that shifts. Maybe that'll shift the narrative. But uh, Steve Handy, I believe, was the only incumbent to have lost. A, a number um, did quite well and uh, ultimately got to the point where they want to get to. There are a couple of primaries, obviously Keith Grover uh, down in Utah County. Um, I, I like that the process is challenging, you know, both the convention and the primary. It should be. It's, it's a battle of ideas. It should be a battle of ideas. It should be people just telling the voters and, and delegates why they should be able to return uh, to the state house and why they should be able to govern. So it is a challenging process. I feel for all of those candidates because it's also a miserable process. It's a hard one. Um, but, you know, the incumbents seem to be doing well. The state convention, there are a number of key races, uh, Senator Vickers, Senator Milner, mm -hmm. Representative Waldrop. Uh, so there are still some interesting races there at the at the state convention coming up. We're watching those close. Representative Stanquist was another one we should mention there too. Uh, some of the issues, Doug, you're seeing that have kind of bubbled up uh, in the county conventions that you see may go into the state convention, and I think ultimately into the uh, the primary and general election. Um, Education is a big issue. Um, what are teachers able to teach, and who should have oversight for the teachers? That's bubbled up. But I'll tell you the biggest problem is getting the attention of the voter. We can see it in the trends of people who read our stories at the Deseret News. Mm. Uh, Jay Evenson, um, who's our senior opinion writer, he was moderating three different school board debates and the level of interest, the level of candidate, it was just like, you know, it, it doesn't register anything. Um, and I think too, people are concerned with their lives and the trends, if you have a controversy like Tucker Carlson, or one of the candidates who, you know, came off on a controversial issue, that gets the press. And, I mean, are we guilty? Yes. Um, but, but readers want to know what's happening in the state. And those issues, when we talk about woke or cancel culture, those have become buzzwords that dominate. But something like, here's what I want to do for the school, here's where I think teachers are right, here's where I think teachers are wrong, that very thoughtful, deliberate process it takes a lot to get a voter engaged in really reviewing that, yeah. even on the county level. Yeah, it's interesting uh, to your to one of your great points there, Doug. To uh, Sonia, we talked about education. Certainly, through COVID, we saw a lot more parental involvement in that process, or a parental interest at the very least. And as Doug mentions, we had a, at least three bills this session dealing with curriculum and transparency. Yeah, it's become, you know, really a lightning rod issue, especially among Republicans throughout the country. And, and, you know, Utah is no exception. There was several curriculum transparency bills. None of them made it through, I should note. Um, so that was kind of interesting. I expected them to go through more, but I think that maybe they just want to give it a little more time to, I don't know. I don't know why they didn't go through. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, there's definitely been a lot more um, 
involvement of parents because of COVID, and then that has bled over um, into some other issues, particularly when we have conversations about critical race theory. I mean, yeah. none of those bills specifically mentioned critical race theory, but it's very clear that's what they were about. There's this really big concern about that theory being taught here. You know. The, Teachers will tell you it's not part of uh, any curriculum in the state, um, but there's a lot of concern about that, and it's become kind of a, a, a wedge issue for sure. Mm -hmm. Excellent, go ahead, Chris. Well, and one of the one of the things, and Doug alluded to this, uh, the state school board races. A lot of people aren't paying attention. Uh, you know, the Deseret News and Hinckley Institute, the Utah Association of Public Charter Schools, are running those debates, which I think is amazing and awesome. But it, one thing to pay attention to: those races are having a significant changeover. Uh, we've had a lot of flux on the state school board over the last 10, 10 years or so, we're going to see it again. Number of candidates either didn't run or were defeated in convention, a couple more coming up here. And there's going to be a significant change in that impact of, you know, whether you want to call it the, the parents groups or whatever, is going to have a change on that board. And it's going to be fascinating to watch uh, what issues that they pick out and, and what they get focused on. And I think that's an example of a relatively small group of people who feel really passionately about one issue. Because people are not necessarily paying attention to those school board races, they can have a really big impact in those races because they're putting all this time and energy and money into it and no one else is paying attention. Well, it's so interesting. There was a period of time pre-COVID when most people had no idea who their school board member was. Yeah. Uh, that's less true now. I hope these debates are, are helping people pay close attention, as you just referenced. Uh, that does have a connection to an interesting uh, study uh, this week, Doug. Um, at, you know, now we're at a, a certain stage in the COVID cycle. Uh, people are looking back to see across the United States what worked well, what didn't work so well. It was interesting uh, because many of our elected officials in Utah are talking about this right now. Um, it was a Wall Street Journal editorial about a, uh, a report from the National Bureau of Economic Research. They looked at economy education policy and mortality. And what was interesting here is that the data is, is sort of looking to say the states that had the tightest lockdown did not necessarily have any better outcomes when it comes to mortality and definitely not with education. That's true. Utah was ranked number one for how it uh, dealt with uh, the pandemic and uh, people rightly are, are uh, championing that. Utah still had 4,700 people die, more than 900,000 cases. Um, but they didn't keep kids out of school permanently. There wasn't a six-month or a year-long stretch as there were in some other states. Uh, the debate over masks was fast and furious. Um, but at the end of the day, I think now we realize kids have to be in school, people have to be able to do their jobs. And Utah started with a very strong economy, and I think that really helped us. Strong economy a young populace, I think all those things factored in. Mm -hmm. When you start seeing these great points that Doug just mentioned, Sonia, does this play into the election at all? Are, are delegates or voters looking at these elected officials and doing a calculation about how they approached these particular issues when it came to COVID? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, particularly you saw this at the state GOP convention last year. Um, you know, people were upset with how Governor Cox handled COVID at the beginning. They felt like, you know, some of the restrictions were were too strict, which is interesting because, you know, a lot of them got restricted, uh, got lifted after about six weeks. Um, but there was, you know, mask mandates and stuff like that. And so um, I think it'll be less of an issue this year just because we haven't had mask mandates, large scale, any sort of lockdowns um, for a while now. So I think it'll be less of an issue. Um, but definitely still on people's minds. Okay.
Yeah. I think this is one of the places where we're seeing where nationalized elections are becoming a problem locally. Because here in Utah, let's be honest, the, you know, there, there were obviously people that suffered through COVID, and there are impacts and real world impacts. But by and large, the state, I believe, managed the COVID response pretty well. Uh, I think it's unfair to look back sometimes. I mean, there was so much lack of information early on. It's a different world that we live in now, both certainly with vaccines, but also an understanding of how things work. But what we're seeing is a nationalization uh, that's impacting local politics. The, the impact, the lockdowns were not significant here like they were in other places. Utah's to be commended for that, and we should, but we should give our leaders credit for the way that they handled that, and I think they're taking some blame or some hits that are undeserved because of the national politics around this, this issue. I just wanted to add also, you know, there was so much we didn't know about COVID in the beginning, and Absolutely. states took different tactics. Some locked down more, some not so much. Um, but we didn't really know. Like, that was kind of a gamble. And so Utah, you know, their strategy ended up being correct, and that's, you know, that's great for the state, we, at least according to that study. Um, but I think it was also sort of a, a gamble in some, in some ways, or maybe a calculated one. I want to give some people some credit. Yeah, I don't want to yeah. say it was a total gamble. But um, I think that, yeah, it was a calculated gamble and they ended up being, you know, right according to that study. Let, let's talk about, uh, since we're talking about these uh, decisions in D.C. having impact at home as well. Uh, Doug, I, I think this is going to be a big issue uh, for the next long while, this issue of inflation. Uh, and uh, we, we have polled with you in the Deseret News recently to talk about inflation in Utah. Should know inflation right now is at 10.4% in Utah, 8.5% nationally. Uh, talk about where Utahns are in terms of their concern when it comes to inflation and how this is going to play out on the national stage. Now, we've looked at the concerns of people for uh, um, for almost a decade with the American Family Survey, which we do, and now here initially. Uh, money concerns are always number one. And we looked at, well, who do you blame? And they blame the Democrats, yeah. right? That's what yeah. the poll says right now. So it's going to play a big role in the elections, uh, a very big role. I think there's no question about that, and I don't think the Democrats really know what to do about it. Uh -huh. Chris, just just a last couple seconds to this point. The numbers uh, of Utahns, when they said how concerned they're about inflation, 33% blame Democrat policies, 23% blame the economic impacts of COVID, just in our last 20 or 30 seconds. Yeah, and one of the things that is so real on inflation is, you know, we're seeing those that uh, reflect really in gas prices. And so gas prices are, are just this interesting fast, you know, indicator of inflation because you're always, you're paying for it every, each week. You see the prices posted as you drive by. And as that price remains above $4, it's going to have an impact politically, maybe more significantly than even 1994, the last big Republican wave election. We've had other Republican wave elections, but it could be a, a real wave coming this year. And to Doug's point, I'm not sure the Democrats are ready for it or quite know how to respond to it. Yeah, it's so interesting. We talked so much about how people tend to vote with their pocketbooks in a very real way, and it's very obvious now. Thank you so much for your comments this evening. Great insights. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.